0: Tonight, we are going to be talking about marriage again, um, Modern Marriage Part 2. We started a this two-part teaching last week. Today, we will conclude it. Um, I recommend, if you were not here, that you go back and listen to last week. We had three points. they on the screen. Three points last week. We only got through point one. We will get through point two and three, two being the longest point and then three being the shorter point, but Three points we, we uh, introduced to you going through Ephesians 5, the meaning of marriage, the unity of marriage, and the reality of marriage. We talked about what the meaning of marriage is, what marriage is. Tonight I want to talk about what marriage does and what ultimately marriage is about. Follow along with me, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, uh, I'm going to read through verse 33. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word, our daily bread. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for a spirit of illumination. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to the things that we need to see? I know... A lot of us might be entering into this text with a lot of trepidation, even um, suspicion. And I pray, Lord, that we would um, uh, come under the, the, um, the beauty of the scriptures and say, though we might not understand this, would you speak, God? So spirit of the living God, as we sang, fall afresh on us, speak to us, Lord. Speak to us through your word. Your word is life. It's living and active and able to get down to like the bone and the marrow down to our very soul, God. So do that through the scriptures. Anoint me tonight. I need your strength, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As many of you know, I have several favorite lines from Chance the Rapper's album Coloring Book. I've gotten a lot of mileage out of this record, a lot in my sermons. But this line stuck with me from the very, very first time I heard the record. This line from his song Finish Line towards the end of the record. um, He says this, We're in a marathon. Actually, he says we in a marathon, but I think he means we're in a marathon. Um, We're in a marathon we could build a marriage on. He sings that. We're in a marathon we can build a marriage on. And I, I sent that to my wife as soon as I heard it. I'm like, this is really good. This is a great line. And it was actually the line, it was the subject of last week's teaching. Last week, we talked about how the meaning of marriage is not a sprint to personal satisfaction. That's not what marriage is. It's more like a marathon towards personal sanctification, it's a marathon. It's like this long game of going, you and I are going to vowing ourselves together for the rest of our lives. Like one of us dies first before these vows are broken. That's what you're saying. And it's a marathon that you're, that you're going and moving towards personal sanctification. And this is why marriage is so hard. If you're asking yourself, like I didn't think marriage would be this hard. No one told me. Well, you didn't ask me. I would have told you. I would have told you that marriage is that hard. It's hard because, um, as my wife puts it, that when you get married, you allow another channel of sanctification in your life. But this channel is like a main line straight into the deepest part of you. They know everything about you. Like the, the, the scriptures say, husband will leave his father and mother, be joined his wife, and then two will be naked and unashamed. The naked part happens right away. The unashamed part takes a very long time in marriage. Because marriage is not about our happiness. Marriage is about our holiness. And therefore... Christian marriage must be marked by covenant, and this is what we talked about last week. Covenant, the permanent personal commitment you make to another person for the rest of your life. So what does marriage do? What, what, is, uh, what is the unity of marriage? That was last week. Now, what is the unity of marriage? This is where I want to talk about, this is, this is what I want to talk about this week, the, the unity of marriage, what marriage does. And this is where we'll get into the, some of the meat of the controversial subjects in Ephesians 5. I don't know if any of you who lived in San Francisco for over three years um, r- listened to Ephesians 5, me read that, and didn't just kind of like, kind of wince a little bit. Like, ooh, um, I, hope, I hope Houdini can get out of this one tonight. This is, this is a hard one. Um, so like I do with controversial subject matters, allow me to make some prefatory comments before we get into this. Comment number one, I'm not an expert here. Um, there are marriage counselors and therapists and scholars that do a way better job of this, than, of this subject than I can. I will try to give you a pastoral way to view this text tonight. The second is that because we approach this with a hermeneutic of suspicion, meaning we interpret this text with a lot of suspicion, allow me to ask you tonight to put on curiosity. Ask yourself, is there something, God, from here that you would like me to learn? And if you are not comfortable with the idea of distinct gender roles within marriage, allow me to ask you to suspend judgment just for the space of this sermon. Allow me to get through this entire sermon, and then judgment can come back in, and then you can come up to me afterwards and talk to me about it. But at least to suspend judgment at least enough to hear what the Scriptures are saying or what I believe the Scriptures are trying to teach us tonight. So those are my prefatory comments. Let's get into it. Marriage. Marriage is taking two separate lives and joining them together as one flesh. This is page two of the Bible. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One of the things that marriage does is bridges the gap between the two genders. See, the husband and wife role, as described in Ephesians 5, are not the same. This is very important. This is key. Husband and wife have different roles according to the scriptures. Now, why do they have different roles? Well, one reason is that the Bible takes our gender differences very seriously. I know that there is a lot of gender confusion in our culture. Like, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Or what does it feel like to be a man? Or what does it feel like to be a woman? And are those feelings, or those things socially constructed or not, etc.? I know we have a lot of those questions. I have a lot of those questions myself. And the title of the sermon is called Modern Marriage, and I confess that what we're talking about tonight doesn't feel modern. We're talking about a 2,000-year-old text here. It doesn't feel modern. But what is modern is our struggles with gender. What's, that's a very modern issue. How do we know what the man is to do in a relationship? How do we know what the woman is to do in a relationship? How do we know what they're to do in a dating relationship or a pre-dating relationship? Or how do we know what they do in marriages? And we don't want differences or roles for men and women. I mean, we live in a society that, that wants to flatten everything. We are the same and we can do the same. But the scriptures say, yes, when it comes to equality before God, absolutely. But there are different roles. There seem to be God-given differences that we have to put on and walk in. We have to uh, have a lot of, um, and, and we have to, I know there's a lot of pressing questions around this, and we have to answer these questions. And our gender confusion, allow me to suggest to you the principle of Ephesians 5 in marriage. You may not agree with it, but I believe it's what the text is teaching in the unity of marriage. And the principle is this. The principle is headship, Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now, remember, you suspended judgment for a little bit at least. So allow me to explain this before you're like, oh my gosh, this guy. Um, you suspended judgment. I just want to remind you that we both agreed that you would suspend judgment. So the word head, um, a husband is the head of the wife, is the word um, in Greek kephale. And it can be trans. it's translated, the word literally means head, like you're your noggin, like your head, right? Your physical head. But Paul here uses it metaphorically. And Paul uses this word metaphorically several times in his writings. He's actually used it already twice in Ephesians alone. And when you translate kephale metaphorically, it can either mean authority or source. Let me show you. Turn to Ephesians 1.22. Just turn there in your Bibles or um, Ephesians 1.22. Notice it says, um, "God placed all things under His feet, Christ's feet, and appointed Him to be head over everything." Here, Paul uses "head" to talk about how Christ is head over all rulers, authorities, and powers for the church. This here, the meaning is authority. The word "head" means authority. Turn to Ephesians 4:15. Just like one page over, probably depending on your Bible. If you have one of those small Bibles, it might be two pages, but. Ephesians 4, 15. It says, Instead, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. Paul here uses head to talk about how Christ is the head of our growth. He is the head of maturity, meaning source. He's the source of our growth. He's the source of all Christian maturity. We grow into Christ the source. Now, We might be able to understand how Jesus is the authority and he is the source of the church, but how in the world does that translate to a husband in relation to a wife? Two things, okay? So, two things. There's two things I want you to think about right now um, as it pertains to Ephesians 5. Number one, it means something. It means something. Like, you're going to go to Ephesians 5 and you're like, hey, there it is. It means something. So don't act like it doesn't mean something. It means something. Like if you, read in a few, if you read where Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss, you're like, no, that's not gonna happen. Okay, great. You might not greet each other with a holy kiss, but that means something though. Yes, it does mean something. And then your job is to figure out what does it mean, okay? Does this make sense? So when Paul exhorts us to do something, we might go, no, I don't wanna do that. It means something. So at least start there, okay? We all agree it means something. Now, the second thing is it might not mean what you think it means, you might think it means something, but many liberal people want to dismiss this passage outright. They're like, nope, this is not there. This is not, no, this is gone. This is 2,000 years ago. It doesn't matter. Um, but conservatives, what they want to do is they want to import everything into this text and say what it means. They want to import their, like, their family of origin stuff, they want to import, like, like Um, American values. They want to import all that stuff into this, and you're not allowed to do either of those. You can't dismiss this, and you can't import what you think it means. We can't do either of those things. What does it mean? First, as we back up on this whole text, it, it at least means, I think primarily means unity. This text is speaking about unity. The metaphor is head and body. The husband is the head like Christ is the head, and the wife is the body like the church is the body. Husband, head, wife, body. Without thinking too much of hierarchy here, it's first about unity. If your head and body are not working together, that's a problem. It's a big problem. It's a problem that might need medication. It might need surgery. Something might, is off. If your head and body are not working in unison, there's a problem. It's talking first and foremost about unity in marriage. There must be unity. First of all, this means unity. Um, Craig Craig Keener, a theologian, wrote a very helpful book about Paul and women and wives called Paul, Women, and Wives. (laughs) It's just a really easy explanatory book. And he writes this. He says this about this passage. The image of head and body here is meant to emphasize especially that the husband and wife should see themselves as one and work together with a common purpose and goal. Keep that up for, there for a second. This especially means, what this means, is you read Ephesians 5, this at least means, and especially means, that husband and wife are one. The two shall become one flesh. And therefore, they need to see themselves as one, and work together with a common purpose and goal. See, one of the reasons why we have such a hard time getting husband and wife roles right in marriage, is because when two people come together, in our modern world they often have two different goals in life but they find each other cute <laughs> like whoa you're attractive you're attractive i can spend time with you i can spend time with you i think i'm in love let's get married and that's what happens and then but they have two career paths two goals in life two ways different ways of seeing the world and when you enter into christian marriage i read Ephesians 5 to these people to say it to you and you go whoa wait a minute I'm not doing that. I'm not doing Ephesians 5. And I would ask you, why? You say, because we both have our own thing going on here. I'm not submitting, and, or the wife, or husband will say, I'm not laying down my life for her. I have a career path. We have our two separate lives that we're kind of moving, and we think that we will, we, we will at least make each other a little less lonely and have a really good time together. And this is kind of what, this is one of the systemic reasons why biblical marriage, marital roles are difficult, if the point and the mission of your marriage is to be married, it will collapse in on itself. If the whole point and the mission of your marriage is, what's the point of you your marriage? To be married. Then the things that you will try, you will take the, the roles in Ephesians 5 and you'll try to fit them into like how to choose um, sh- uh, sheets for a bed or something. And, and you'll, you'll try to apply Ephesians 5 to decisions like sheets or where to live or something like that. And when you do that, it breaks down, because the husband will might read this and say, um, "The Bible says submit." I mean, just says that. And then the wife will say, "Well, the Bible says you're supposed to die for me," so says that. So it looks like wife, I win. Like I, like the wife wins in this scenario. Like yeah, I, she can live whatever she wants to live, you know. And that, like it, the, you, when you do it with things like sheets and like where to live and that sort of stuff, it starts to break down. When you have to step back and get a larger vision for your marriage, why are you married? What is your calling as a married couple? Remember, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it's not good for man to be alone, was said after Adam had a call on his life to, to keep a garden, and they did it together. I'm not saying the man necessarily has to be the one that has like the purpose, but husband and wife should come together for a common purpose. They're married for a goal, for a reason. There is a meaning to their. There should be a meaning to their marriage, a purpose of their marriage. I often have couples write a mission statement for me at the beginning um, or work on it towards the beginning of our premarital, and at the end submit it to me. Like, what is what is the like the mission statement for your marriage? And doesn't have to be for like the rest of your life, though. I want you to save it, but. I want you to do this so that your marriage isn't just about you being comfortable, because that will be the default mode. If you don't have a mission to your marriage, it will be, we're going to get along, we're going to be comfortable, we're going to be happy, and, and, and we're going to, you know, do the things that make us happy or whatever. And when you start doing that, and that's the mission and the meaning of your marriage, um, it starts to collapse in on itself. It starts to be about the stuff that you get together, the experiences that you have together, and not about a larger purpose. When you have a larger purpose, then these, these, these like, God-given roles start to, like, start to make more sense. So what does headship mean? It, it means, um, Ephesians 5 means unity, but what does headship mean? What does it mean that husbands are the head of the wife? Le- okay, so that's, that's a question that's out there. What does it mean? Um, let me, let me allow Paul to answer this question. I won't answer it. Let Paul answer it. Look at Ephesians 5.25. What does Paul mean that the husbands are the head? Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, husbands are never told to rule their wives, Ever. It doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, rule over your wives. It doesn't say that. Actually, what the scriptures say to wives should humble and shock and put a holy fear into every husband. I think if you take Ephesians 5 seriously, husbands that read Ephesians 5 should be, f- should be fearful, like godly fear. It should shock you and humble you. See, this, this person that God has made in his image, that is your equal in every single way, is being spoken to by the scriptures, not by you, but by the scriptures, to submit to you. Now think about that. These free, responsible persons, another human being, who very well might be smarter than you and more spiritually mature than you, are being asked to submit to you And the first reaction you should have as a husband is, oh my goodness, what do I do with that? Why in the world is that there? Now, I wanna be honest about something. Many guys in our modern culture don't want this to be true any more than the women don't want this to be true. So what I typically see in couples, in premarital, is that couples shake hands to the fact that this isn't really a thing. They both read Ephesians 5, and they're like, hey, the guy's like, I don't really want you to do this. And she's like, I don't want to do this. She goes, let's just shake hands. It's not a thing. I'm like, okay, let's do that. And they go, like, okay, that's cool. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's not cool. That's not, again, the, this means something. It means something. Again, the implications of this should really humble and put holy fear into husbands. Husbands should read this and go, okay, what do I do? What do I do with this? And the answer is this, love. Self-sacrificially love this person. See to it that the way you love her leads to her sanctification and her holiness. You are never told to rule her. You are never told to assert your quote-unquote headship, ever. You are told what headship means to the husband is that you self-sacrificially love. Whatever headship means, it at least means that you can't use it to please yourself at all, ever. It first means that you give your life to serve your wife. You are the head servant leader. You are the lead leader of servant, servanthood, of laying down your life first. Does that, does that mean the husband has to be the main money maker in the home or take out the garbage and or make all the major decisions? Absolutely not. That is not what this is talking about. Listen, if you've tuned out because you're arguing when I, though I told you not to do that in your own head, come back. Listen, there are no cultural uh, details given to this principle. There are no cultural details given to this principle at all. How you interpret this in South America and North America and South Africa and North Africa might be different. The principle is the same, but the cultural details given to this principle, there are none. It's adaptable. We get pictures of women in the scriptures, like Proverbs 31, women who are crushing it in the workplace. They're making more money than their husband. They're running, like, in Proverbs 31, she's like running a farmer's market, and she's in the fashion industry and in real estate and global stock markets. Like, she's just cr- crushing it. And then we're given women, like in 1 Timothy, who stay at home and raise a godly family and train other women to, women to do likewise. We're given both of those beautifully in Scripture. And what this means is that you have to work out what headship means in your own marriage. You're not, you're not culturally given reasons or ways to do this. I, if you notice, have, have not shared how Ash and I do this in our home because it's different. Every couple needs to figure out how this works differently. And it's not really wise to import all of your family of origin stuff into this. It's not, go, it's not good to go, well, my, my mom and dad did this way. I mean, it's good to like consider it, but don't just automatically import it. Remember, you left your father and mother to cleave and cling to your wife. You left them. You must leave them in that way. You must grow. You must go to the scriptures and go, how do your and my personalities mesh together? How do we, how do we, uh, what is the, the mission of our marriage together? Like You have to be answering and asking these larger questions. Let's talk about wives for a second. Wives, submit to your husbands. In antiquity, wives were subordinate to their husbands. So popular wisdom in the Greco-Roman world to which Paul writes here held that husbands should rule over their wives. This is what Aristotle said. Aristotle said, it is part of the household science to rule over wife and children for the male is by nature better fitted to command than The female, Aristotle. What Paul does, Paul writes right into this culture, and Paul never says to rule your wife. He says to self-sacrificially serve your wife, and Paul turns this entire idea of Aristotle on its head. Because look at verses 21 and 22. This is so subversive of Paul. Look at verse 21. Submit to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice uh, 21 and 22. 22 comes after 21, 21, 22. I mean, this is right next to each other, guys. Like, you can't miss it. They're right on top of each other, okay? Submit yourselves to one another. Wives, submit to your husband. Paul urges submission, but only by placing it in the context of mutual submission. That is so important. Paul says, yes, there are roles, and there is submission, on the wife's part, but it's only in the context and only in a household of mutual submission. And he defined submission quite differently than the rest of his culture did. Submission is not blind obedience. Submission for the wife is in a context of mutual submission. That means we are each free to seek the other's good. We are both free to love and serve unselfishly and to maintain these as a goal like, we will have these as a goal to, to, to mutually serve each other even when we feel our partner is not upholding his or her end of the contract. We will mutually love and submit to each other even when we feel like the other spouse isn't doing it right. So what that means is that wives are not told to submit to their husbands only if their husbands are loving. And husbands are not told to self-sacrificially serve their wives only if they're being submissive. If you are in a marriage and you're like, my spouse is not being the person they should be, fine, I won't be the person I'm supposed to be. That's wrong. That's like a form of revenge. That's toxic in any marriage. What you're to do, wives and husbands, is to take Ephesians 5 for your own gender and your call in marriage very seriously. Now, but again, let's ask this question, why submission and headship? Why is there this biblical principle? Why does it seem like there's this biblical principle? Why am I I uh, proposing that there's this biblical principle? And here's the best I can understand from looking at the life of Jesus. See, Jesus was equal to the Father, but also submitted to the Father. Equal, yet submitted. When when you were asking, if you were to ask me why why, does, why is a wife being told here to submit? And my answer is, and you would say, is it because like Aristotle says that the husband is more fit to lead? I would say, no, that's not the reason why. Is it because this or that, this? And I would say, probably not, no. And the only answer I can give you is that I don't know. I, I believe this is, I mean, I believe this God and his wisdom has done this. And the pattern I look to is that Jesus did this willingly, being equal to the Father, he did this willingly. God in his wisdom has established certain roles within the family, and submission is a humble recognition of this divine ordering. And I think this is why in the, w- in the wisdom of God, Paul writes, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. What he's saying is this, is that as you, in a marriage, under the context of mutual submission, and we'll talk about what what headship means in a second. But as you, as wives do this, you're doing it in worship to Christ in a way. When husbands, you see this order and you're like, this is like really awkward, but I'll try to step into this as best as I can. You are submitting to Christ. I believe that when we do this, we are in humble recognition of divine ordering by God and there's wisdom in that. So I think the question really is, how do we as married, as married people see learn and submit and apply what the Bible says about marriage and marriage roles rather than dismissing them because they don't make sense to us? How do we read them and learn from them and submit to them and apply them? How do we do that? This is the great challenge of a marriage, I think. How do we, do, how do we live into this? So let me talk about headship. Why, why, what is my best take? I'm going to give you my best take on why I believe that there is biblical headship. Am I, and my best take on, not why biblical headship, or what, rather, what is biblical headship. And here's my best take on what biblical headship is. What does it mean that the husband is the head of the wife? Here is, and you might not agree with me, you might agree with me or not, but here's my best take. And I would say study it for yourself, wrestle with it, think about it, most importantly, pray through it and submit at the end to God. But here's my take. My take is that what it means in the context of Ephesians 5, that, that the husbands are the head, is that the husbands have responsibility for. That's my best take on this, uh, of what Ephesians 5 is saying. Husbands have responsibility for their family. The husband has a leadership role, though not in order to boss his wife around or use his position as privilege. Just as Jesus redefined greatness as being a servant— Paul redefines being head as having responsibility to love and to give oneself and to nurture. I think it means husbands. And you take this very seriously. I believe that you will stand before God and have to take a responsibility for your household, how you loved, and self-sacrificed, served, and led well with mutual submission. You will stand before God and take responsibility for this. How you loved, self-sacrificially served well, and led with mutual submission. And that might seem like a lot of work for you. It might seem like a lot of pressure for you. And it is. There is a lot of responsibility here given to the husband. How it works out with careers and choices on, on where to live. I mean, that's, that really is for you and your uh, husband and wife to figure out together, but I think there is a role for husbands to, to, to before God go, I'm going to take responsibility to pray for my wife, to pray with my wife, to, to mutually, uh, mutually serve and submit, and also to take a leadership role of responsibility to self-sacrificially move us toward, like, sanctification, now, does that mean the wife doesn't really partner with that? No, absolutely, that doesn't mean that at all. I believe, like we see in Genesis chapter 3, that um, there's something of responsibility given to the husband where God will say, go to Adam and go, what happened? I think there will be some of that. Um, now, the, the way this is possible, I want to back up for just a second, is that verse 17, or verse uh, 18 in chapter 5 The whole context is being filled with the Spirit. So husbands, I pray that you're not crushed under the weight of this. Or if you're engaged, you're like, whoa. I hope you're not crushed under the weight. It says that this is possible by being filled with the Spirit. Now here's my question to marriages here tonight. No matter where you land on what this means, is there a way in which your marriage is showing the submission of Jesus and the love of Jesus in your marriage? Because there is mutual submission and there's mutual love, is there a way that your marriage is showing both the mutual submission and the mutual love of Jesus, so much so that it puts the love of Christ on display? That's the whole point of marriage, is that your marriage, the point, the goal, the hope is that your marriage would put Christ and the gospel on display. That is the reality of marriage. I just gave away the third point, but let me move forward reality of marriage, what is marriage about? Marriage is so much like salvation and our relationship with Christ that Paul says you can't understand marriage without looking at the gospel. You can't understand marriage without looking at the gospel. So Paul underlines this like really great story stretched, uh, sketched with a quote from Genesis 2.24. He says, um, down in verse 32, he says, a man shall Verse 31, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He, he goes all the way back to Genesis, before human rebellion, before men and women had, had like relational uh, brokenness. He goes all the way back and he says, a man will leave his father and mother and join his wife. And in that sentence, before rebellion even happened, God planted a seed of the Messiah, of what Jesus would do, that Jesus would one day leave the place where he was at home. He would leave his comfortable, not, I don't know, comfortable, that's probably the wrong way to say it. He, He would leave his glorious throne in heaven and he would drape himself with humanity. Philippians 2 said he would humble himself to become a human He would leave his place that was his home in search for a bride to cling to, to be unified with, to become one with. Because marriage is a picture and Christ is the reality. Marriage is a picture, Christ is reality. And there's two implications for this. The first is you cannot be a good married person unless you're both looking to Jesus. If marriage is a picture and Christ is a reality, you cannot get the reality, the picture right unless you're looking at the reality. Like, what I, I often do this when I'm doing an outdoor wedding. I'll have everyone look around and, like, look at the scenery. It's beautiful. And if you were to paint, if you were, like, one of those painters that, like, paints landscapes, if you were to do that and, and the landscape was a reality but you were painting a picture, you would have to fix your eyes on the reality in order to get the picture right. In the same way, marriages work the same way. In order for us to get the picture right in marriage, we have to look to the reality. So husbands, you must look to Jesus. You must be in prayer to Christ, in submission to Christ and Christ's word. You must be spiritually strong. Wives, the same thing for you. You must look to Jesus. You must spend time with Christ. You must be in prayer and in the scripture. You must be submitted to Jesus. And you guys need to do that together and also individually if you're ever going to get the picture right. You will not know what it means to submit unless you're looking to the Father. You're looking to Jesus and you're seeing Jesus submitting to the Father. You're not going to know what love is unless you look to Jesus and see him laying his life down for another person. The second thing this means is you won't be secure in any place that you're at in life right now. If you're married or you're single or you're divorced, or you're navigating what it means to be faithful to Jesus and have same-sex attraction, you won't be secure in any place you're at until you see that Jesus has personally, is personally your husband. He has personally married you. And therefore, you are unified with Jesus until you've seen what Christ has done with us. That we are a picture of people who should not have been, should not be married to Jesus. But we are. And we, what he did to make our marriage a reality with him, what he did to save us, how he saved us, how he raised us, how he filled us with the Holy Spirit, how he's cleansed us, how he's adorned us with beauty, how he's redeemed us, we have to see that how he's put a ring on our finger, like the prodigal son, saying no matter what you do or where you go, I'm yours. I vow myself to you. Like this is Christ. And until we see that, you won't be secure no matter where you're at. If you're single, you won't be secure in your singleness. You won't be secure in your marriage. You won't be secure in no matter what you're navigating through unless you see what Jesus has done to marry you, to be be unified with you. This is um, this is a profound mystery, Paul writes. This is a profound mystery. And you almost think he's talking about marriage, because if you, if, if someone told you about marriage, and Paul said that's, marriage is a profound mystery, you'd be like, yep, it is a very profound mystery. But he says, I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. I love that line. He talks about marriage, and he says, this is a profound mystery, and if you've never read What's Ahead, you're like, yep, marriage is a profound mystery. And Paul's like, yeah, but I'm not really talking about marriage, I'm talking about Jesus and the church. That marriage is a profound mystery. That Christ would marry himself to us, that is the profound mystery. And that is a mystery I want to celebrate tonight. That is a mystery I would love to spend time um, thinking about, meditating about, singing about, um, submitting to God, like bringing all our questions right now to God, all our, our pain, all our, all our like maybe even things that are coming up with us as we listen to this right now, to bring those to God. And ask the Spirit, Lord, this is a profound mystery. I pray you'd give me revelation of this mystery. How you've loved me, how you've saved me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for our marriages in our church, like I did last week. I always feel when I talk about marriage, I mean, to be honest, God, you already know this, but I'll say this in front of everyone that this is my absolute least favorite subject to teach on. Um I really do feel like there's spiritual strongholds to when I teach on this subject. I feel, like, personally, f- like, attacked and marriage kind of attacked and there's always a, f- a funky thing in the room. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work, break through the chains that, the chains that bind us, the lies we believe, the way that the stronghold that even our city has on, on gender. I know that it's so complex for, for men in our, in our world, um, in our culture, they don't know what it is to be a man. And there's a lot of confusion around that. And we try to look to our culture for that. And the best we can do is like look at like way back when or something instead of what does it mean to be a, a godly modern man? And wives and women have that same struggle, what it means to be a woman. What it be, means to be a woman in a world where men have both um, abused their, their power in this world and not stepped into God-given authority as well. And so women feel like um, really at a disadvantage from both ends of that. And so there's so much healing that needs to take place. And I can talk forever, I couldn't really talk about forever about this, but... We could talk forever about this, and we need your spirit. We need the spirit of the living God to fill us. We need you to teach us and correct us. Lord, I need to know, we need to know what it means to live into our God-given gender roles. I'm just saying that, Lord, by your spirit, would you allow that to happen? And Lord, we need, we need um, I think we need to worship you tonight in spirit and in truth and healthy ways of, of coming before you and saying, Um, Thank you for saving us, Lord, for cleansing us. Thank you for, for unifying us to yourself and marrying us, Lord. Thank you that when we were far off, you came running for us, and you put a ring on our finger. Thank you for that. And so we do. We move into a time of response and worship now. In Jesus' name, amen.